All right, Revelation 12 and 13. It's a perfect segue to get into Revelation 12 and 13 this morning. Um, if you're new, um, man, we are in the deep end right now. Uh, and, and one of the most confusing books in the Bible. And, uh, and we're trying to navigate through it. And we believe that there's something to be said here. We believe that it's here for purpose. Uh, and so uh, we believe it's designed to be a discipleship manual to bring life and courage to the church. And uh, I believe that it's, uh, it's, it's doing that. It's doing that in my own heart. And so if you haven't been tracking, quick, quick review. Or, man, if you just forgot what we talked about last Sunday, which is fair. Um, I want to give you just a quick recap of how we're approaching this book. We're doing it in four ways. The first is that we're seeing this book as a letter, which means that it was written to real people in real time, which means it doesn't mean to us what it didn't mean to them. Uh, and so we're seeing it as a letter. We're seeing it as an apocalypse. And so this means it's an unveiling. Uh, and so that idea, that word uh, revelation means unveiling. It's an unveiling of things to us. It's designed to use symbolism to awaken things within our hearts, to draw us more clearly to be inspired as followers of Jesus. So it's in a letter, it's an apocalypse. Third is a prophecy. It's designed to bring comfort and conviction to the people of God. Um, just like Jeremiah, Isaiah, other uh, major minor prophets in the Old Testament, this is designed to awaken and to stir us back to God. And lastly, and definitely not least, it's a liturgy of worship. It's designed to stir our affections and worship to Jesus. And so this week, um, we're going to see an unveiling of a cosmic battle. We're going to see a wild battle take place in Revelation 12 and 13. We're going to meet our enemy, and we're going to see how we are called to respond to him. So that's where we're going. We're going to meet our enemy, and we're going to see how we're called to respond to him. We're going to meet a lot of people. Um, so those that are introverted, it might be hard for you if you're about to meet a lot of people right now. Um, so just take a deep breath. You're going to be good. Um, and we're going we're gonna to get through this um, together. As we've done so far, we've been encouraging you to read along with us ahead of time so you know where we're going. I'm not going to read every single verse in the next two chapters, but we're going to try to give a high-level understanding of what's going on here. Revelation 12, starting in verse 1, we meet the first person that says this. And a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a, a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. And so we begin, and all of a sudden, John shifts. Like, you come, you read through Revelation 11, you think the book is done. Like, it looks like Jesus has returned. It looks like the seventh trumpet has happened. It looks like the kingdom of uh, our, the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And it's like, all right, John, you did it. Good job. It's finished. And then we get right back into this. And we're going to see more as we go in the upcoming weeks why that's happening. Um, but we enter into this, and John gets another window. It's Again, it's not chrono chronological. He's seeing this, and then he's seeing this. It's just sporadic. He's seeing things. And now this next sign, he sees this woman, and it's... Again, wild. John is articulating what he sees. She's clothed with the sun. Like that's it's pretty wild, right? The moon is under her feet. We see that she's crowned with 12 stars, this place of authority, and she has, um, she's pregnant, we see within this story. This awesome woman is, uh, is the people of God, both before and after the coming of Jesus. So this represents uh, the remnant of Israel, this uh, represents Mary, the mother of Jesus, and this represents the church all at once. It's a symbol communicating all of that, and we'll find ourselves within her 
uh, when it comes to symbolism. And then the next character we meet is the dragon in verse 3. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Just read that. And another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour her. So we see another sign. It's a great red dragon. Seven heads. He, uh, seven is complete. Heads is a sign of authority. So there's a complete authority given by God, but a complete authority that this dragon has. Uh, it says that he has uh, ten horns. Again, another word, ten, would represent complete, and the horns mean strong, and so he's completely strong. Again, all these numbers are to be communicating something. They're symbolically communicating something. So he's completely has complete authority. He has complete strength. Again, Martin Luther said, we said this last week, that on earth is not his equal, that he is completely strong. Seven diadems, thinking about crowns. He's rich in wealth. And influence. And it says that his tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. We read here that he is ready to devour the child. And we're about to learn more about that in a minute. And then we meet the child in verse 5. It says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations. With a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So we meet this child, and this child, it says, who is to rule, another translation would be shepherd, to rule or shepherd all the nations with a rod, but not the rod of Psalm 23, a rod of iron. What we find you might not think about Revelation being a New Testament version of Psalm 23, but over and over again, Revelation 7, we see this picture of Jesus shepherding. We see here this picture of him shepherding the nations with a rod of strength, with a rod of iron. In Revelation 21, we see his comfort and care, another symbolic reference to uh, God's care as a shepherd. And so this child is Jesus. As he's born, or as he's ascended in just a minute, and the woman is, uh, she's fled into the wilderness for a time. So, so far we see a woman, we see a dragon, we see a child. Two of those is a symbol and one is quite literal. The woman is a sign, the dragon is a sign, and the child is really a child who became king. See, this image happened that we just read, it happened Christmas Eve and will be completed in the future. It's not our typical Christmas message, right? Like this message of a dragon trying to devour this woman and her child. You don't necessarily hear that during the Christmas season. Eugene Peterson summarizes this text by saying this. It is John's spirit-appointed task to supplement the work of St. Matthew and St. Luke so that the nativity cannot be sentimentalized into coziness, not domesticated into worldliness, this is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil. So Jesus is the child 
and he is flexing and showing the church then and now that he alone has dominion over the dragon. Such hope for the first century church to feel the weight of the pressures of that day, to know that Jesus still has dominion. And the cosmic battle continues in verse 7. We read, Now war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and, it, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of the brothers and sisters has been thrown down and with who accuses them day and night before our God. So you see this battle between Michael, this, this archangel, and the dragon. They go head to head in this picture of what John is seeing. Again, a symbol. It's not actually happening. It's a symbol that, that John is seeing. And he sees that Michael, the, the side of God, is defeats the dragon. And there's no longer a place for the dragon in heaven. And so that dragon is thrown down six times in the following verses. We see thrown down, thrown down, thrown down again six times that he's been thrown out of the throne room. See, he has power now on earth, no power in heaven. So we learn who he is. He is the devil. This dragon is the devil. He is Satan. He is the deceiver of the world. He is the accuser of the brothers. And the accurate translation would be the brothers and sisters. And he accuses them day and night. Maybe you feel that. Maybe you feel that voice of shame that just creeps in your head. Sometimes that's things from our own past. And sometimes that's the enemy chirping in your ear trying to accuse you and make you believe that you cannot receive the gospel, you don't deserve the gospel, that you have to earn it. And that's the enemy accusing you. So John says that uh, a war in heaven takes place and that Michael is one in favor of Michael. It's not Michael who won, it is the, the child who wins. We know this echoes all the way back to Genesis 3. The first gospel presentation was in Genesis 3. Genesis 1, creation happens. Genesis 2, we see that, uh, that God kind of hones in on humanity and uh, Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 3, we see the serpent come into the garden, begin to chirp into the ears of Adam and Eve, begin to say, did God really say? Did God really say? And all of a sudden, their, their ears begin to hear and they began to see desire for things other than God. They began to trust in things other than God. And it was in that moment that they rebelled against God. And, and a chasm, a fracture that took place that devastated our world to this day. That's how we understand this world. That's why we have pain. That's why we have sorrow. That's why we have death. This moment was the beginning, the genesis of that. And from there, God made a promise to the woman. And he said, that you're going to bear a son. And, and your, a future uh, from your loins is going to come forth one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And we're seeing this play out at the very end of the book. Who won? That the he won through the birth of the child. 
One through the life of the child, one through the ministry of the child, one through the crucifixion of the child, one through the resurrection of the child, one through the ascension of the child. This is why Satan, this great dragon, hates Jesus and his church. He tolerates Buddha. He tolerates Muhammad. He tolerates the pantheon of Hindu gods. He detests Jesus, the one victor. It's a crazy image we see. And as an apocalypse, it's designed to provoke something within us. It's to remind you that there's something more going on than what we can realize or what we think. Remember the story you're a part of. That's the point of this. Remember that you're a part of a story bigger than your nine to five. Remember that you're a part of a story bigger than just trying to spring clean, just designed to focus on the here and now. Remember that you're a part of a story with purpose here that God has planted you here. Don't get caught up in the weeds of this life. Remember you have an enemy who knows his time is short. He's a better student of the gospel than some of us even are. He knows what is to come. He knows that his time is short. And he knows that he wants to be destructive between now and then. See, the Bible is telling us why things are so bad at times. An enemy has been defeated, he's desperate, and he's waging war to destroy as much as he can. Friends, that's our reality. There's a dragon who is at war. Why is life hard and and difficult and pain so real? The dragon is at war. Why is the fifth movement of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one? Because the dragon is at war. This is, what, this is why things are so bad. The dragon is at war. He's accusing, he's deceiving, he's destroying. But the cosmic battle doesn't end there. It continues in Revelation 13. And we learn more about him as we are introduced to his two minions that he has. We have a dragon and then two beasts, two Minions. And these beasts are not literal, but they're symbolic. It's like a political cartoon. I couldn't find a better one, so I am going to go back to the Cold War real quick with you. And I know it's sensitive times for us right now. I pray that we are praying for Ukraine and the things that are going on in Russia and in that, that area. But there was a tension in about four decades in the Cold War. There was a geopolitical tension uh, in the U.S. and the Soviet, the Soviet Union. And uh, there was images that came out that were used, and, and one will be up on the screen for you. There's Uncle Sam and a big brown bear. And so if you're a 14th century Viking, and you look at that, it's not going to make any sense to you, right? And so when we read Revelation, we see a beast, and we see a dragon. We can very easily not understand what John's saying in real time and in real space. For us, as we look back over those four decades of the Cold War, we know that on on the left is America and on the right is the Soviet Union. We know that. That makes sense to us. And in the same way, when we read the beasts that are happening here, let us allow um, John's context to help us understand what's happening as well. So Revelation 13, starting in verse 1, it says this, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, Seven heads with ten diadems on its head, on its horns, and the blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like bears, its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and, and to it the dragon gave his, author- his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, 
For he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? One more verse in verse 8. It says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. You hear that? All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. So we meet this first beast comes out of the sea. Seven heads. Again, seven means complete. Heads means authority. So complete authority given by God. It says the dragon, but we know who gave the dragon authority. It says ten horns. Again, complete, complete strength, um, similar to the fact that he has complete authority here. Um, seven diadems. Again, it's, it's the similar realities to what the dragon had. And there's this wound on his head that was healed, and we're going to learn more about that in a second. It says that he was like a leopard, a bear, mouth of, like a lion. And what we know is John was so, uh, so understood the Old Testament. So this directed him right to Daniel 7. He was very aware, if you're familiar with Daniel 7, there's a picture that Daniel gets of a, this beast. And in this beast, there was a lion, there was a, a leopard, there, there, was, uh, there was these similar animal figures that were represented. That, that Daniel is well aware of that when he's, when he's recording this. It's a terrifying picture. It's this partnership of the dragon and the beast working together in tandem. And their goal isn't necessarily to get all of the worship. Their ultimate goal that we're going to find is simply to get the worship away from the Lamb. They can just get the worship away from the Lamb and towards themselves, yes, and even beyond, that's the win for them. So what is the first beast? For the uh, first century church, this was Rome. This was Rome, the modern day, this, this huge empire that ruled the known world at this time. They were so aware that this was reflecting Rome. So for us, this is Rome, but it's Rome plus. Dale Johnson, one of the commentators I read, said this. What John wants us to see is that the beastliness of political power is born of blasphemy. Political powers do not set out to be bestial. They set out to be their own master, and in the process, they turn bestial. No one can be God but God. When the state or the nation seeks to be God, it does not become divine. It becomes demonic. And so what we find here is that Rome is representing this power that at the time for the first century church, they understood it to be Rome. But for us, as we look back and have context, we know that it is every it, it, it's, it's, this, it's this sway that's trying to pull all nations away from God. See, when the nation moves in this way, and every nation does, and if I can be honest, we are not an exception to that, the pressure on the people of God increases because the people of God are in opposition to the nation's goal to be divine in and of themselves. See, the head wound is a symbol of resilience, that it's, it's communicating resilience, that the beast is a beast, and it continues to be resurrected. Daryl Johnson goes on to say, just when we think he has been knocked off, he rises again in a different form, as we have seen in our modern day. Just when Nazism gets knocked off, communism rears its head. Just when communism gets knocked off, nationalism rears its head. Leopards, bear, lion, over and over again. 
He seeks to devour, and he seeks to take out, and he seeks to deceive and point our affection and attention away from Christ. So we learn here that we must have a healthy suspicion of all political institutions. No matter how they got started, political institutions as good as our great nation will tend towards blasphemy and then beastliness. Always. There is no exception. All nations will find themselves moving towards the beast. So therefore, our allegiance must be to Christ first. This is what the text is telling us. As a discipleship manual to us, it's reminding us that our allegiance must be first to the Lamb. You know, I have to overcommunicate here. I'm so proud to be an American, and I'm humbled by God's providence here, truly. But this is a sobering reminder that America is not the hope of the world. That great hope of the world is not a political system, but the answer to the cry of Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The great hope of the world, we have to be so careful. And the church got really ugly these last couple of years. Pulpits got taken over by people that talked more about politics than they talked about the lamb. And we have to step back and recognize that is a part of the beast's system. See, in this discipleship manual, we're reminded to be discretionary about where we put our hope. Disciples of Jesus chiefly pledge our allegiance to the emperor of emperors, to the king of kings, to the premier of premiers, to the president of presidents, to the commander-in-chief of the commander-of-chiefs. See, this is what makes us distinct. Our hope is put in Christ alone, not in a political system that will always, always, always turn beastly. There is no exception. And so we submit to that in this discipleship manual. And so John ends this section before he continues the next one. And, and in part B of 10, he says, here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Again, this is his point. He's beating this drum. Be distinct. Stay the course. Don't lose heart. In the midst of all that's happening, stay the course. And then we meet the second minion. This is wild, isn't it? All right, here we go. We ain't done yet. Verse uh, 11, it says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast, in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wounds was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So the same authority is given to this second beast. And so we have a dragon, and his puppets, his minions, are these two beasts. The first is this kind of the sway of political, um, a political focus of trying to sway nations away uh, from God and become divine in and of themselves. And this second one has more of a prophetic, religious emphasis. See, the first beast is a political one. The, the earth's beast is a religious one. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 5. He says, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. 
Those are the red letter words of Jesus. And so a prophet leads people to worship the living God. And so the false prophet leads people to worship the nation. So he's doing in tandem with the political one, in tandem, trying to get worship away from the lamb. This is his game, and he is good at it. He is so subversive, and he is so cunning. We don't understand the magnitude of his manipulative schemes to move us as the church away from our allegiance to Jesus. He's cunning, he's seductive, and he says things that sound kind of right. And if we're not clear on these implications, we can be swayed away from our allegiance to Jesus. We see the mark of the beast is a symbol. Again, it's not the vaccine. Just freedom here. It is not the vaccine. It's not an actual chip either. Again, the goal is that all of these are symbols. Nothing's literally. All of this is symbolic referencing stuff. The goal of the second beast is to do whatever it can to manipulate people into trusting and following political and religious powers that move us uh, out from under God. And so the mark of the beast is allegiance to the beast. It's an allegiance to the nation. It's allegiance to the false understanding of Christ. These things are what the mark of the beast is. This incompleteness is pointing us away from Christ. So we got a dragon in this cosmic battle who hates Jesus, and honestly, he hates you, and he hates your family, he hates your marriage, he hates this church, he hates the Big C Church, and he's trying to devour. That's, that's, that's the guy that we're talking about here. So let's talk a little bit more about this dragon. We don't like to talk about Satan very much, unless you t- grew up in a church that only talked about Satan, which is also quite weird. And so, so who is this dragon? A couple titles. Satan, the evil one, the tempter. These are all biblical references. The destroyer, the deceiver, the great dragon who deceives the world, the ancient serpent who leads the world astray. Jesus called him the father of lies. Peter called him a, like, a roaring lion, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is the one we're talking about here. In the Screwtape Letters, um, C.S. Lewis wrote 31 letters from a guy named uh, Screwtape, who was a senior demon, and he was writing to his nephew, Wormwood. And it's this interesting interaction between Screwtape and Wormwood, as they're both demons seeking to devour in the world. And so one of the things that Screwtape advises Wormwood on is this. He says, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping your patient in in the dark. So the point is that um, Wormwood is, uh, is designated a specific individual. And so he's talking about how to deceive this individual. That's the patient he's talking about. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him, and maybe for our context, Will Ferrell. And persuade him, in the SNL episode, it's just very funny, but again, we can go there. And persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. So he's simply saying, if you can just get him to think that Satan is just this guy with a pitchfork and red tights, you win because he's not going to believe in you at all. And so you can wash your hands, continue to work, because he's not going to believe that you're actually real. And then more in a modern way, Kevin Spacey in Usual Suspects says, the greatest trick of the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And that's the goal. 
and our Western civilization just to believe he doesn't exist so his cunning manipulation can occur and we don't give him credit for what he's doing. So a little frame of reference for us regarding Satan. He was created by God. He was created by God, not with God in the beginning. He was the created. God is the creator. He is a creation. God is the creator. And so he was created by God, not equal to God, not yin-yang. This is not a yin-yang thing from a biblical perspective. He rebelled against God and his ways. And in his rebellion, he was pushed out of heaven. And so for thousands of years, he was the prince of the world, ruling and reigning and deceiving. And he has been the energy of many great historical atrocities that we've seen in our time and in history. And Jesus, he came to destroy the work of Satan and to, uh, to destroy him and to rescue humanity. And Jesus' victory over the devil is now as if we are in D-Day. We talked about that several weeks ago. Where Jesus has won, but it's not complete. And in the meantime, his time is short, and he's seeking to destroy and devour, spreading lies and death, specifically to the people of God. And Jesus' call to us is to storm the gates of hell. Jesus' call to us, he says in Matthew 26, when uh, and Peter says, uh, but Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a part of the call of the church. And Jesus will come again to close it. Jesus will come again and will destroy him forever. He will at one point in our future be in the rearview mirror. So from the garden, Satan has been asking this age-old question to deceive, manipulate in his cunning. And the question is this. It's simple, and it's so cunning. Did God really say? Did God really say that? Did God really say that you can be trusted? Did God really say that you can uh, that you have to submit to certain things within the Bible? Did God really say? He says it over and over again. He, his goal is to simply say, you can take your freedom back from God. Just take your freedom. There's freedom in taking your freedom back from God. Little do we know that taking our freedom from God is actually slavery that we're stepping into. John Mark Homer says, the deception or temptation is always twofold. To seize autonomy from God and redefine good and evil based on the voice in our, in our hearts and the inclination of our hearts. Then that truth in the... Gosh, I'm still trying to figure out how to proofread my stuff. <laughs> voice in our ears, that's what he's trying to say, yes. Evil based on the voice in our ears and the inclination of our hearts. Uh, than that truth in the loving word of God point that he's just trying to subtly move us away. There's no good. You can define good and evil for yourself. God, God didn't really say. You can, you can define it for yourself. And in that is slavery. And that is death. So examples. Who is God? The devil would lie. He's unloving. He's a jealous tyrant who is holding out on you. You can't trust him. So we can be easily, subtly, in his own manipulation, cause our hearts to move away from trusting God's good care for us, the songs we sang this morning, and towards having to trust in ourselves. So things that he deceives about who we are, the devil lies and says, the question, who are we? The, the devil lies and says, you are not just a human being with a place and an ordered cosmos over the creation, but, but still under the creator. You're not, you're not a creation who has to submit to the creator. No, 
You can transgress your limitations and become whoever and whatever you want. Identity is self-identified. Morality is self-determined. Take control of your life. You be God. Don't submit to having to be under the authority of God. You be you. Follow your heart. Man, you think about the messaging we hear so subtly, friends, so subtly, so destructive, is did God really say? Did God really say? And how we live, question about how we live, what is the good life? The devil lies. You can't trust God, but you can trust yourself. You can trust your wisdom. We can't even keep up with our checkbook. And Satan's telling us we can trust ourselves. Seriously. You can trust your own wisdom. Don't let God limit what you want. Follow again your heart. Subtle lies. Just trust, trust anything else but God. See, the devil is a master of manipulation. He is far more intelligent than we give him credit for. Using everything he can to pull our minds and our hearts away from Jesus. So in this establishment manual for us as we close, how did they and how do we conquer the devil? Well, let's go to the good book. What does it say in Revelation 12, 11? It says this. And they conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So let's break that down real quick and we're done. By the blood of the lamb, they conquered the devil. What does that mean? It means that we can't conquer him. Again, on earth, there is no equal. We conquer because he conquered. We are victorious because he's victorious. And in of ourselves, we are not. And in of ourselves, we are a target. We have a target on our back. But in him, we have a refuge. By the blood of the lamb, we conquer. Let me remind you of what Colossians 2 says tells us. It says this about the cross. Colossians 2, 11, or 14 and 15, it says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities. It's not talking about police officers. It's not, it's not talking about judges. It's talking about Satan and his minions. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We conquer by the blood of the lamb. His power has disarmed, has been disarmed by the slain lamb who's conquered. We conquer under, under the covering of the lamb. That's how we conquer, under the covering of the Lamb. Secondly, by the word of their testimony. It's the witness, and we talked about this last week. This is the whole point of last week and, and 10 and 11 when it came to our charge. Our charge for our life is to witness the Lamb. That is the charge of the church, to exemplify the victory of the Lamb through laying down our lives for the world. Not seeking power, but laying down our lives for the world. So the dragon, again, is spewing lies. And so we're showing and sharing truth and love. He's spewing lives. We're showing and sharing love and truth. We proclaim to the world. We proclaim the message of the gospel to ourselves, and we proclaim the message of the gospel to the world. I get it. Sharing about Jesus may be awkward. I was talking about this with some friends this week. But anything new is awkward. When you first started praying out loud with other people around you, 
It's probably very awkward. Okay? Do we just give up on prayer because it's awkward? No. When, when it comes to worship, singing. Man, we've been increasing in singing together. Praise God. Let's keep doing that. But in the, Yeah, sure. Clap, yeah. But it, it's awkward. I get it. I've talked to some of you about it. It, it feels uncomfortable. But do we give up on worship because of that? No. We lean in. With fasting. Man, fasting's horrible. But it's good for our spirit. It's good for our soul. Is it easy? No. Do we give up on it because of that? No. So why do we just punt on evangelism because it's awkward? We do. Probably partially because we've seen what we shouldn't do. We have enough access to all the people we don't want to resemble when it comes to sharing. But that doesn't mean we give up on it. We do it in love. We do it in care. We do it in authenticity. We do it in not throwing out tracks to people, but to actually love and care and, and build equity in somebody's relationship and, and show them you're broken just like they are and you need Jesus just like they do. We overcome by the word of their testimony. He simply just wants to put us to sleep and then kill us and destroy us. And, and we want to communicate to ourselves and to the world, the truth of who he is. If we don't speak up, parents, sidebar, if we don't speak up to our kids about who Jesus is, they'll be formed by TikTok. That's terrifying. If we don't form them, if we don't show them Jesus, they will be formed by something else. They are being formed by something now, and we want to show them Jesus. Lastly, loved not their lives even unto death. Friends, Sunday morning attendance won't be enough for the fight we're in. Sunday morning attendance is not enough. I pray that Sunday morning attendance is dying. Post-COVID, that we would begin to see a shift, that there would be a desire for discipleship, robust discipleship, where our faith goes beyond just showing up and checking off a box, but we would reorder our lives around Jesus, actually following him. That's the only thing that's going to keep us in this thing, following the lamb wherever he goes. See, this war is so much more real than we realize. And this story, it provokes us. It reminds us. There's something bigger going on, friends. There's something greater happening. There's a war, a cosmic war taking place. His time is short. He's seeking to devour, and the blood of the Lamb is protecting you. So in this apocalypse, it's designed to awaken the church to her, to our destiny. It's true for the first century church, and it's true for us. As I close, I don't know how to do this, but I... Just felt, you know, as I was praying through this, and maybe for some, there's just a need to re-sign up. Maybe just coasting. COVID jacked everything up, and we kind of maybe just stayed in a rut. The last several years, like, man, my faith from the outside world doesn't even look like I'm following Jesus. And this is designed to bring comfort, it's designed to bring conviction. And, and maybe for you, it would be an opportunity to see what you're a part of, what you're a part of, and to potentially re-sign up. That there is a dragon, that we are at war, we're being called higher, 
We're called to give our lives to follow Jesus. And so as Trevor comes up, I would love to just pray for us and ask the Spirit to breathe on us afresh. Life's hard. It's painful. I've talked to some of you. You've experienced death recently in your life. For others, there's been turmoil with relationships or other things that have happened. Maybe things that people don't even know about. Shame that might be real for you. And man, this is a hospital. This is not a country club that we show up and put our our best foot forward. We come in with a limp. We come in on crutches. We come in saying, there's just one who can rescue me. And this is an opportunity for us to re-sign up together. And I'd love to pray for us in that way. Let's pray. So Father, as we look at this wild text with wild characters, Lord, I pray that it would do something more to us than just be something neat, but it would actually stir us to see what we're a part of, what you're doing, that you're not done, you're at work. And Father, I ask by your spirit that you would help some of us in here who feel like we've just been coasting for too long. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to re-sign up. Lord, we ask for your spirit to move in our midst. Draw us to your fresh, God. We thank you for this space of communion. We ask you to allow it to be administered to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.